a bulletin, and in that bulletin has, uh, we've given you a connection card. That's a little tear-off piece in that bulletin. I want to encourage you over the next few moments, if you have a pen uh, or pencil to fill that out, certainly we could provide you with one after the service if you don't have one. And the reason for that is if you turn in that connection card, somewhere between uh, now and next week, it magically turns into a $10 donation uh, to a local nonprofit through the month of December. Every connection card our church receives, we will donate $10 to Russell Child Development Center, uh, which provides a lot of helpful services uh, to families in our community. Um, And so I want to encourage you to fill out a connection card in the next few moments Uh, That way we can, on your behalf and really on the church's behalf, donate $10 for each of those connection cards we receive. When we take up the offering, that will be at the end of the service. But uh, for now, I want you to take a Bible, digital or physical, and turn to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in the book of Matthew and chapter number 17 this morning. Uh, Our church's habit normally is to study through books of the Bible Uh, because we believe that God knew what we needed when he wrote his word. And so as we just work through books of the Bible, number one, it teaches us how to study the Bible for ourselves. Uh, Number two, it shows us that uh, scripture is sufficient for our every need. And I think hopefully, church family, what it does for you is it gives you an appreciation that all of God's word is profitable. All of God's word is valuable. And all of God's word can bless us. Would you agree with that this morning? All of scripture is profitable, the Bible says. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter number 17 this morning, and I encourage you to join me there. Now, how many of you have uh, enjoyed the really cold weather the last week or two? Any of you enjoyed it? Okay, you sick, sick people. Get out of this church right now. I hate the cold. And it'll help you understand why, because I'm from Arizona. How many of you would much rather have a nice warm spell. You know, like we had a couple weeks ago. Holy cow. Me too. Yeah, I saw some heads nod, hands raised. I don't know about you, but being in this cold weather reminds me of being in a frozen tundra. I know that's dramatic, but I'm from Arizona, so bear with me. I hate the cold. Stop, stop doubting me, Dennis. I really feel like it makes me feel like I'm in a frozen tundra. And so what I want us to do to begin the sermon this morning, I want you to imagine yourself at the base of Mount Everest. Okay, if you have a hard time imagining it, it's on the screen, okay? That's what Mount Everest looks like. You're at the base of Mount Everest. I don't know if you know this about Mount Everest. It is 8,800 meters high. It's the highest point on earth at the top of it. And as you look at that picture, you realize, of course, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we studied Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And I really feel like Mount Everest does what the Tower of Babel couldn't do. It quite literally bridges the gap between heaven and earth. It's huge. It's 8,800 meters tall. Um, Of course, it's freezing cold at the top. In fact, it's so tall that most days, and for several months on end, actually, you can't see the top of Mount Everest. There's a very small window that you can actually even go to the top of Mount Everest because the weather up there is, number one, it's very unpredictable. And number two, it's freezing, freezing cold. Now, naturally, as humans, we have this instinct, don't we, to conquer and explore. 
right? Uh, any of you have had little boys, you've seen that in their nature, right? If you're on a farm, you want to go out and explore. I, li- I grew up in the desert, and I had some friends who had a little bit more property. My parents had a little bit of property, and we'd go explore the ravines and occasionally get cactus in our legs and stuff like that. And so because humans have this instinct to explore, it's no surprise that there have been a bunch of people uh, starting maybe 100 years ago or so who want to climb to the top of this thing. Now, I think those people are crazy, but some people want to do it. In fact, over 16,000 people have tried to summit Mount Everest. And of those 16,000, only 5,000 have succeeded. I told you, picture yourself there. Can you picture yourself there? Some of you are like, I don't want to picture myself there, right? Picture yourself there for a moment. I think if you and I were standing at the base there, there would be at least two feelings going on in our heart here. Number one, I think you'd be inspired. Staring at that sheer greatness of a mountain. Think of the possibilities. If you're crazy enough to climb it, I'm sure you'd be inspired thinking about putting your name on that prestigious list of only 5,000 people who've climbed to the top. Getting that selfie at the top of the mountain. Planting that flag at the top of the mountain. It would be inspiring. But I think more than that, you would be overwhelmed with the next feeling. You would be humbled and overwhelmed. Because as you even just look at this picture and you see that sheer face of rock, you stare at something like that and think, there's no way on planet Earth I'm going to climb that thing. You start thinking about the over 11,000 people who failed trying. You would start remembering maybe what your guide said, that there are some people who can train all of their lives to climb Mount Everest, and for reasons inexplicable to doctors, they will climb Mount Everest, and at a certain altitude, they will get an altitude sickness that can kill them, and it has nothing to do with their physical fitness. It's completely random and unpredictable who can get serious altitude sickness. You'd think about the sheer physical demands, the cold that you'd have to endure, the physical exertion your body has to go through, the the torture your lungs have to go through as the air is thinner and thinner and you feel like with every step you're suffocating. You would think about how many people have tried to do this impossible task and have failed. Now, I don't think you need to put yourself in the shoes of a Mount Everest climber to come across some feelings that we all have had of being defeated by a problem that seems impossible. I don't think in our congregation we have any people who have experienced climbing Mount Everest, but I do think that every single person in this room knows what it's like to come face to face with a problem that seems about as intimidating as Mount Everest. Are we on the same page this morning? It feels impossible, it feels overwhelming, it feels humbling, and though the thought of it seems nice to overcome those problems and and seems inspiring, you recognize and you are acquainted with the feeling of defeat. Maybe this morning you find yourself standing in the shadows of a broken relationship, wondering how you're going to traverse the unknown territory of betrayal and hurt and disappointment. You find yourself facing a health difficulty 
that has not just hurt you physically, but has crippled you emotionally, bringing you to your knees in desperate prayer. Maybe this morning, like all of us, you're staring at the mountainous tower of your own sin. And while you would like to think you can be like David and slay your Goliath, conquering that sin that governs your life seems about as impossible as climbing Mount Everest. That's probably why some of us at times, we feel about as motivated to overcome our sin as we do to buy a ticket to Nepal to climb Mount Everest. It just seems impossible. But here's the beautiful thing, church, and I want you to listen carefully. That in the face of your Everest-sized problems, what you're gonna find this morning is that God invites you to approach those mountainous problems with small faith. Some of you aren't listening because that seems a little strange and none of you are recognizing how strange that is. But this morning, as your pastor, here's what I wanna challenge you to do. I want you to approach the biggest problems in your life with small faith. What? That seems odd for a preacher to ask you to do. But what we're gonna see in our text in Matthew 17 is that Jesus' disciples are encountering an ever-sized problem. It's a mountainous issue. It's something that seems impossible. And our passage this morning is going to invite us to explore the profound truth that it is not the size of your faith that matters. It is what you're placing your faith in that matters. In our text in Matthew 17, Jesus is going to show us the profound truth that there is big power when there is small faith that is anchored in a big God. Our passage this morning, I think, breaks down into three parts. What we're gonna see as we read our text this morning is a big problem. We're gonna talk about a small faith and then we'll end seeing our big God. Look at Matthew chapter number 17 and verse number 14 with me. The word of the Lord says this, and when they were come to the multitude, there came to him, this is Jesus, a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. Well, this is not the soft teddy bear Jesus most of us like to picture. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart or alone and said, why could not we cast him out? That's a good question. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place and it shall remove and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. This morning, I want you to see the big problem. 
Our text begins with a big problem. Look back at verse number 14 and 15. This big problem is presented to Jesus. And I find it interesting that it's not Jesus' disciples that tell him about this big problem, right? Who's the one who tells Jesus about this big problem? The kid's dad. Now, work with me for just a minute. I wonder... If here are the disciples, it's clear while Jesus has been on this mountain of transfiguration and he has been with his three closest disciples showing them his glory, and here the rest of the nine disciples are down at the base of the mountain dealing with these problems, that I wonder that the reason that this man's, this boy's dad is the one who's presenting the problem is that the disciples are too embarrassed to admit that they utterly failed. And this is a pretty big issue because this man has a son that it seems is having uh, debilitating seizures. And I don't know if any of you have experienced family who's dealt with that. Um, Even in modern neurology, seizures are kind of hard to figure out a lot of times. We don't really know what causes them a lot of times. And so here's this little boy in the first century who's dealing with these debilitating seizures, but it seems like this is more than medical problem because we find out later Jesus casts a demon out. Because more than just having seizures, this child, every time this child is around fire or water, something inside of this kid is trying to get it to throw itself into the water fire. Now, how many of y'all are parents in here? You've had little kids. Half of your job as a parent of a small child is just making sure they don't kill themselves doing something stupid. Am I right? I mean, I, I have three kids, and my middle kid, I'm trying to make sure they, she doesn't accidentally kill our baby because, you know, when she wants to hug somebody, she thinks hugging is the same as choking, you know? I'm just going to bear hug my little one-year-old sister. So as a parent, you know, half of what you're doing is just making sure nobody dies on a regular basis. But this guy, he's got some real problems. All right, he's not, he doesn't just have a daredevil son who wants to jump off of the treehouse. He's got a kid that, because of some demonic influence in this kid, is trying to throw himself into a fire. Now, you and I maybe aren't around a lot of open fires, but you got to recognize in their day, they didn't have HVAC. You know? If it's frozen December weather, they warm themselves with a fire. So there's a 24-7 possibility of this kid trying to kill himself. Everywhere this parent goes, He's trying to make sure that his kid does not do something that will end his kid's life. Can you picture this father's desperation? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine how hopeless he feels? No doubt he's probably tried to go to doctors. Obviously. Maybe he went to some of the other religious people, the Pharisees, to try and figure out this demonic issue. And finally, he hears about Jesus, and he shows up. And can you imagine what it would be like to show up, find one of Jesus' followers, and say, hey, I want to see the healer. And they say, sorry, he's on vacation. That's a bummer. He's up the mountain. Well, I want him. No, I don't know when he's going to be back. You're stuck with us. All right, I'll get the B team. So here the disciples, they try to heal this young man, And what the text shows us, look down at verse number 15. Sorry, verse number 16. That the disciples try to fix this problem. It says this, I brought him to the disciples and they could not cure him. Now, if you want to understand this text properly, you need to look back at chapter 10. Just flip back a few pages. Look at chapter 10 in verse number one. 
Because while this problem seems very, seems very impossible to us, Jesus was very clear in chapter number 10 that he gave his disciples the ability in this context to cast out demons. Look at chapter 10 of Matthew and verse number one. It says, and when he had called unto him his disciples, look at this, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out. And look at the last part of verse number one. And to heal, what's the next word? All, all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So here are the disciples, they're facing their failure, but if we have been reading Matthew's gospel carefully, we know that Jesus has already given them the ability to fix this problem. And it's not gonna be in their own power, but Jesus has conveyed his authority and his power to them to fix these problems on his behalf. And this is not the first time they've encountered something like this, but for some reason this time, after giving all of their efforts, after trying everything they could, there's not any progress, no cure. No one goes home happy. A man comes with his son who may die at any moment and he goes home with the same problem. I think all of us know that feeling that the disciples would have had that day. We know what it's like to be presented with problems and to do everything in our power to try and fix them, that we want nothing else but to have victory over this issue and to be frustrated, maybe angry, in despair because we just can't fix it. But here's what's crazy about this. Jesus shows up and what the disciples just could not figure out Jesus deals with in a snap of the finger. Look at verse number 18. Matthew writes it so understated. Look at verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. I don't know about you. I don't read about any big, long, complicated rituals here. Do you? I don't, I don't see Jesus uttering some very long, drawn out prayer. You know, like the ones your grandma prayed? around the Thanksgiving table, your grandpa, you know, the, the, the $20 prayers. No, Jesus shows up. Matthew says, he rebukes the devil that was in this child. The devil's out. He's cured immediately. All in a day's work, right? I wonder how the disciples felt. Come on, why couldn't we do that? And here's Jesus, and when he shows up on the scene, what seems impossible is painless and easy. Now listen, you've been with me long enough, church family. You've been in this series long enough to know that we are not surprised when Jesus takes care of a problem easily, are we? We also aren't surprised when the disciples manage to royally mess up something, are we? But I want you to stop and not let the disciples off the hook for a second. That though you're used to them messing up, and though you think, well, of course they couldn't do it like Jesus, Jesus actually doesn't seem to think that way. No, what we find is when Jesus sees these disciples' failure to cast out this demon out of this boy, he's frustrated, exasperated. You know why? Because unlike you and me, listen, Jesus knew 
they could have done it. And so what we find in verses 19 through 20 is Jesus, first of all, rebukes them for their small faith, for their faithlessness. Look at Jesus' words in verse number 17 and feel the tone that these words would have been uttered in. It's the same way I talk to my kids sometimes. Look at verse number 17. He says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Well, I don't talk to my kids like that, but you know what I mean? He's exasperated. Come on, guys. You faithless and crooked generation. How long am I gonna be here to clean up your messes? How long am I going to be here to clean up all the problems that you won't fix yourself? Do you see his tone? Are you feeling it this morning? Jesus is saying, you could have done this. When we're asking the question, Jesus, I know you can do it. But the disciples are like, Jesus, come on. We're just, we're mere humans. You're the son of the living God. Why can't we do it? Well, Jesus gives us some clues. Verse number 17, what does he call them? He calls them faithless. Faithless. Verse 20, look at verse 20. He says they had unbelief, little faith. So what is Jesus addressing as the root problem here? If we put both of those statements together, here's what we recognize. Now you gotta pay attention or you're gonna miss the whole point, okay? The problem of the disciples was not that they needed their faith to be bigger, okay? The problem was that they had put their faith in the wrong place. They were faithless. What Jesus is indicating to us is that the reason that these disciples did not heal this little boy is that somewhere along the way between chapter 10 and chapter number 17, they had stopped putting their faith in the fact that their authority and their power came from Jesus. And they had started thinking that maybe the reason and the ability they have to heal is not coming from him, but maybe they were starting to trust in themselves. Jesus and his power didn't change. His ability to heal and to cast out demons didn't change. But what had happened in the disciples' hearts is they were no longer trusting in him to fix the problem. They were trusting in themselves. Their faith was not too small. That's not the problem. Their faith was misplaced. So when Jesus says, you have little faith or you have unbelief, the problem that he's addressing in this passage is that the disciples had stopped relying on the power of Jesus and had started trusting in themselves to solve their impossible problems. And I have a feeling that every single person here knows what it's like to drift away from looking to Jesus to fix our problems and to start looking at ourselves as the solution to our problems. I, I, I don't have the time to give you an exhaustive list, but I think we all recognize this morning that when we start looking to ourselves to deal with our problems, the end game of that route is frustration and failure. I was talking to someone in our Wednesday night Bible study who mentioned that 
one way they've watched as they've dealt with pain and loss and as they've seen other people deal with pain and loss is that it is utterly impossible to navigate pain and loss on your own. That particularly in those situations of grief or in the valleys of life, we start, it's our natural instinct to start looking to ourselves to push through it. And we do that in a variety of ways, right? Sometimes we try to fix it ourselves by saying, well, if I can answer why, then I'll be, I'll be okay. Why did my marriage go south? Why didn't I see those red flags earlier? Why did God take them too soon? Why did this happen? And we think if I can get to the bottom of that question, then maybe I'll come to peace. And what you find, number one, is you never get to the bottom of that question. Friend, the day has to come. If you're dealing with something in your life, you have to give the why over to God. Some of us, we try to deal with our pain other ways. We, we turn to self-help strategies. We turn sometimes to distraction. You know, instead of dealing with the pain, we find some other things to distract us. We find other things to suppress the emotions that we're dealing with, something to take off the edge. And the reality is, is at the bottom of every one of those is failure and frustration. Sometimes we try to solve things on our own, like our sins. We think, if I can just stay away from this thing that causes me to be tempted, then maybe I won't fall to sin anymore. If I just try a little bit harder, if I just act with a little bit more discipline, then I'll find victory. But I can tell you from my own personal experience and from the experience of many other Christians I've talked to, that when you try to fight sin on your own, at the end of that road is frustration and failure. I think sometimes when Jesus watches us dealing with the struggles in our life, I wonder if he would show up and have the same word. Come on, y'all. When did you ever think it was in your power to fix this? Have I not told you enough? What's odd about, and I think interesting about this passage is Matthew words it very intentionally and ironically. Jesus is criticizing their little faith and he then tells them in the next breath to have little faith. Right? The, the word under unbelief in verse number 20 is, a, is literally is little faith. And so what Jesus is doing in verses 19 through 21, yes, he's criticizing their faith that's in the wrong place, but Jesus is also teaching his disciples and he's saying, if you want to overcome the impossible, here's what you need. You need you some small faith. Where, where am I getting that from? Well, look at verse 20. You've probably heard this illustration of Jesus. He says, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed. He says, you could have said to, the, to a mountain. I don't know if he's pointing at the same mountain he was on top of. He said, if you had just the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this huge towering mountain, get up and move over here and it would happen. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with mustard seeds, but... 
I don't know if we deal with those here in Western Kansas a whole lot, but a mustard seed's about the size of a grain of sand. I mean, I don't know the last time you handled an individual grain of sand in your fingers, but it's so small, your nerve endings almost can't tell it's there. It's tiny. And can you imagine the huge difference in size between Jesus holding up a grain of mustard seed and a mountain standing in front of them? The difference is huge. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is he's saying, here's the problem. You don't need bigger faith. You just need to place your faith in the right place. You need to stop putting your faith in yourselves and you need to start putting your faith in me. Jesus is saying that if you would just have tiny faith, then you could move towering mountains. Now, how could Jesus say that? Listen carefully. Because Jesus is being clear that your power over problems is not based on the size of your faith. It's based on the location of it. Your ability to overcome problems in your life has nothing to do with your faith and has everything to do with your God. That's why this morning, as a preacher, you may have never heard a preacher tell you to have this, but this morning, here's my challenge to you. I want you this morning to walk away with some small faith. I want you to walk out of Fellowship Baptist Church, and here's all I'm asking you to do. Walk out of these doors with some mustard seed tiny faith, but put that faith in a God that is bigger than Mount Everest. Put that faith in a God who is huge. I think a lot of us, here's what we worry about. We think that we're failing because our faith isn't big enough. Are you with me? Maybe it's just me who's getting in my head sometimes. I think, you know what? I bet I bet this would all be fixed if I could just have bigger faith. God is punishing me because I'm just not trusting him enough. No, friend. No. God says, just just have the faith of a mustard seed. It's not impressive. Now, mustard seeds are little, but what happens when a mustard seed gets put in the ground and gets some water thrown on that thing? It grows, doesn't it? Hey, I'm just encouraging you this morning to start small. And here's what Jesus admits in verse number 21 is that mustard seed faith, little faith, the way we can gauge whether or not we've got little faith or not is if we give ourselves over, this is what Mark says, to prayer and fasting. You don't need to have great faith to pray. Listen, if you're worried that Jesus doesn't listen to your prayers because your faith isn't big enough, friend, you need to clear that thought off of your head. Jesus just wants you to approach him in prayer at all. Just come to him and pray. And if you don't have enough faith, ask him to help you with it, right? Jesus is saying here that if we're gonna have tiny faith, small faith, the way we can gauge whether or not we're exercising that small faith most often is by whether or not we're even praying about it. Now listen, I don't want to give you too much of a break. Don't say you have the small faith Jesus is calling for if you don't even have enough faith to muster up a prayer. I say, well, sometimes I don't believe when I'm praying. Join the club. (laughs) I love how Mark words the same story. When Mark writes this story, he focuses more on the father You might be familiar with the words of the father because Jesus calls the father to have faith. And you know what he says to Jesus? Lord, I believe, but 
could you help me with my unbelief? You know, it's okay for you to pray that too. Lord, I believe that you can help me with my sin, but could you help me because I'm struggling? Lord, I believe that, that you can reach down deep in the heart of my kid who wants nothing to do with me, who wants nothing to do with you, but God, I'm just struggling right now. Could you help me with my unbelief? Lord, I'm trusting you to provide in my life and bring uh, resources or bring people into my life that I need, but right now, I'm just struggling. And Jesus says something amazing. He says, if you will exercise tiny faith, that tiny faith can conquer a towering mountain. Now, why would Jesus have the audacity to say something as silly as that? You know why? Because Jesus' point in this passage is so clear. Big problems are no match for a small faith that is placed in a very big God. You and I have missed the point of this passage if we're looking at us. Because all throughout the passage, God is reminding us of who he is. How big he is. Not how big your problem is, how big he is. Because it's a very big God who showed up on the scene in Jesus Christ and rebuked a terribly controlling demon and cast him out in a moment. It was a very, very big God who just overshadowed the Mount of Transfiguration and spoke from a cloud and said, this is my beloved son. It's a big God who can take a towering mountain, pick it up, and move it, right? It's a very big God who does all of these other impossible things that we see in Scripture. It's a big God who has a virgin give birth. It's a big God who says to a storm, peace be still. It's a very big God who says to a dead son, get up from that grave. My friends, we serve a big God. And Jesus is calling you this morning to remember that your problem may be big, but your God is bigger. Your faith may be small, but you have a very big God. And when you place your small faith in a big God, big problems are no match for him. This morning, what I want you to do is to take whatever faith you have, whether it's a mustard seed or whether it's a huge bag of rocks size faith. I don't care. Whatever it is, take whatever faith you have. And here's what I want you to do this morning. Bet it all on Jesus. Bet it all on him. Stop looking at yourself in the mirror and wondering if you can fix this problem. No, take your faith. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at Jesus. Because a little faith in a big God goes a very long way. Christ is bigger than every mountain. You know, there are some big problems that if you and I would just exercise a little faith, those big problems are no longer big problems. You know, the biggest problem every single person has in their life that could just be fixed with a little bit of faith it's the salvation of your sinful soul. The Bible's clear that all of us have sinned. 
And this is not a little problem, though some of us would like to think that, that, well, I've, I've only done this many sins. No, God is clear. He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. In his presence, no sin is allowed. Therefore, if there is any sin in your life, big or small, you have a very big problem. You have a big problem. That means you have no relationship with God on this earth. And when you die, you are on your way to a real place, a literal place called hell. That's a big problem. Would we agree about that? Big problem. I have sin and my sin separates me from God. Big problem. But did you know that to overcome that big problem, you just need a little faith? Because the Bible, literally the entire Bible story is that your big problem of salvation, of being reconciled to God is fixed when you repent and you believe. When you repent of being in charge of your life and stop being in control of your life and you believe in the sufficiency of God's son, Jesus Christ, that huge mountain-sized problem that is bigger than any other problem you think you've got going on in your life, that problem is eradicated with little faith. My friends, you don't need to have great faith to receive Christ's salvation. You just need faith in Jesus. Whatever faith you've got. Some of us, the reason we're not trusting Jesus, we think, I need to grow my mustard seed a little bit. Then I'll trust in him. I need a little more proof. I need to examine this a little bit more. But here's what Jesus said. Just take your mustard seed and just, just put it in me. And it would really fix your problem. Big problems are no match for a small faith in a big God. I've watched with joy so many Christians who are given over to the mountain-sized problems of addiction and bondage, who've tried everything under the sun. They've tried every support group they can find. They've tried every psychologist they can find, and they cannot fix it. But yet the power of God can bring such transformative change when people break the chains of addiction by placing their faith in Christ. And does it take work? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It takes work. But addictions and bondage are healed and they begin with the process of someone trusting that it's not about me fixing this problem. I need Jesus to fix this problem. I've watched people who've gone through the most horrible things and are spiritually broken and are wrecked by emotional pain and turmoil. And you wonder, how can someone who's gone through that pick up the pieces and move on with their life? It seems impossible. But people who've been broken by betrayal, by hatred, by hurt. And all they've got, all they've got is a mustard seed. And they think, well, everyone else has let me down, but I guess I'll just bet it all on Jesus. And friend, the transformation of a mustard seed is not a quick process. It's a very slow process. But as people put their faith in Christ and they turn to someone who will not let them down, who does show perfect love, who does show grace, who does bring deep healing, God fixes the impossible and restores shattered hearts and minds. Jesus' point in Matthew 17 is pretty simple. Nurture, listen, nurture a small faith. That's in a big God. 
Nurture it. I want you this morning to evaluate your current approach to your biggest problems and ask, who am I really trusting in to fix this thing? Now, I know right now some of you are giving yourselves a little too much credit, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna help you to answer that question correctly. If you say you're trusting God to fix it, please tell me when the last time was you prayed about it. And this is gonna hurt some of us Baptist potluckers. When was the last time you fasted? What? That's in the Bible too? Yeah. Listen, what Jesus is saying is that mustard-sized faith, it may not be impressive, but it can at least pray. And some of you are too scared to pray because you don't think you have enough faith. I just wanna challenge you, just pray with what faith you have. Mustard seed faith is not big faith, but just take whatever faith you have and go to God with it and ask him to help you. You're a whole lot better doing that than trying to fix it on your own. I want you to evaluate, evaluate this morning. How am I approaching my current biggest problems? Am I trying to fix them myself or am I trusting in Christ to do what only he can do? This morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. How am I doing in spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting. If you're like me, you probably need some work on it. Can I get a witness to that? All right, all right, we got a couple. I don't know about you, but if I hear a sermon on prayer, I'm like, bummer, I, you got me. <laughs> I need help with that one, you know? I think some of us, we just need the reminder, could you just pray? Could you stop worrying? You know, it takes the same amount of energy to worry as it does to pray. Just instead of worrying, you're just thinking about it up here and thinking, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do this? In prayer, all you're doing is saying, God, could you fix this? God, could you fix this? It's the same amount of energy. Stop worrying and start praying. And this morning, if you feel like, man, I don't even know if I've got mustard-sized faith. I don't even know if it would be a grain of sand. Simple prayer, and it's in the Bible. Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I feel like I'm the disciples that you would rebuke because of their unbelief. Could you just help me with that? I know I should trust you by now, but could you please, God, help me? It's okay for you to pray that. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you a time to respond to God's word. My wife's going to come and play. And I know this might be different than some churches do, but I think that that if I'm gonna preach that we should pray, we probably should pray. I don't know all your problems, so I wanna give you a moment of silence while the music's playing to pray. The best way, oh listen, the best way for you to nurture a mustard-sized faith is to not leave this room until you've prayed about something. Y'all like, I'll pray when I get home. Come on, y'all. Pray right now. Got something going on? Give it to God. As Shelby plays, I want to give you time to talk to your big God about your big problems and ask him for help to just have some small faith. As Shelby plays.
Lord, some of us right now, we, we don't even know what else to say because, Lord, all we can say is, God, just help me. Lord, I don't know what other problems are out there in the, in the pews this morning, but, Lord, I, I believe and I hope that your word has inspired faith in us to believe that you are bigger than anything we can face. And so, Lord, I trust that you have done something to convict us like your disciples need to be